Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Oddcast, the podcast, or World Empowered Dialogues. Uh, here at a World Empowered, we have a philanthropic vision. We have a vision of the world where all women, men, and children are empowered. Empowered to speak their truth, empowered to be themselves, empowered to provide for their needs and protect and heal the environment. Every week we bring, bring in inspiring guests and thought leaders, founders of nonprofits around the globe, uh, to share a message of hope and to inoculate people with the belief that they can make a difference. To share their struggles of their stories of struggle and trauma and where they've come from and what they've decided to create and contribute to the world. <laughs> We're adults here having adult conversations, so often there's adult language involved, but we want to thank you for being a part of this and for sharing the message and for tuning in. So get ready for another inspiring conversation with another thought, le- thought leader and get ready to get odd. Good afternoon. Hello, SJ. Hello, friends and family. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Oddcast, the podcast and the Dream Achiever series. Today, I get the distinct pleasure to sit down with my friend, Sarah Jean Weiskaver Fiedler. Did I get that right? You got it right. You got it right. Sarah Jean uh, grew up in rural Colorado. Uh, She graduated in 2008 with her Bachelor of Arts in with a major in sociology and a minor in women's studies. In 2008, she completed her master's of arts in education leadership and SJ became a doctor and finishing up her PhD with distinction in higher education student affairs leadership program at UNC Northern Colorado. Um, Dr. Weiskater Fiedler has practiced, taught, coached and consulted on leadership for over 15 years And while her experience as an executive leader are fundamental to her coaching and consulting, her values of authenticity, belonging, courage, and integrity guide her work with her everyday clients. And one of the things that's most important to me, my newest member to the team, the family, the board of A World Empowered. So I'm so honored to be here with you today and share the conversation that we're about to share. Uh, Thank you. How are you today? Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. And I'm so excited to be part of A World Empowered and to be part of the mission there. Um, I'm good today. I'm good today. The weather is starting to cool off a little bit and it feels like like the world around us is transitioning. And for me, that transition is a really natural space. Uh, so I've been, so it's good. Yeah. Rather than the heat of summer, we're transitioning into cool, tranquil autumn season. It's yeah. definitely palpable, especially yeah. the last few days with all of the rain. And then today's a lot cooler. Yeah. So the leaves and the trees are starting to turn and yeah. just yeah. get that new energy, that new season that comes in. Yeah. yeah. Well, why don't you share with our audience and the people watching today a little bit of your background? I shared your bio, but how about you tell them how you came to be where you're at today? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up, Brian, as you know, rural Colorado. Um, I was a first-generation college student, and my story really started when I was 21 and I had my daughter. Um, by the time I was 22, um, I was divorced. Mm. Um, and being, raising my daughter on my own, um, and that was tough, that was tough, and, but my parents gave me an opportunity, and they said, um, you know, Sarah Jean, if you want to go to school full-time, 
we will help you with your daughter Bailey. And so that's what I did. Um, I went to school full time. During that time, I found myself spiritually, I found myself intellectually, I found my values, the things that matter most to me. Um, after that, um, I became, I was teaching, I was juggling lots of different leadership jobs, whether I was working at the university, teaching at the university, working at another college, you know, trying to make ends meet as a single parent, um, all while fighting, you know, mental health challenges and, and everything that comes along with, um, you know, living right at the poverty line, right? And so... Barely surviving. Barely surviving. Um, I remember going grocery shopping in my parents' um, in my parents' freezer, right? That was like, okay, here's how we're going to get meat. And Bailey can tell stories about how, um, you know, we would come up with these really strange concoctions based on what we had in the pantry. Um, you know, and that was life for us. That was life for us until... Um, you know, finally, my PhD work finished in 2014, and um, I got jobs that allowed me to not just survive, but to move beyond that and to understand what life was like to have means. Um, and so I worked in some um, executive leadership positions. Um, and then last year, almost this date exactly, mm. my appendix ruptured. Fun. Yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> I thought I just had a belly ache. Right? Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Something ain't right here. Something good ain't happening. Right. And I really believe as I look back now and I think about what happened, um, you know, there had been several things, health issues leading up to that. But I really think that was the final straw where the universe was just telling me yesterday, this is time you need to shift course. Hmm. Um, and I, rather than having a normal appendicitis like people have and they're back to work in a couple of weeks, it took me um, over three months to heal. Um, Did they actually rupture them? Yes. So, Great. Um, unfortunately, they and they didn't know that. So, um, when they went in to do the stuff that they do, they found all the stuff. Yeah. All um, the bacteria floating around your right. cavity. Right. Great. And, yeah. It was, it was awesome. And so, I ended up, you know, um, with a So, you're lucky line. to be here. Yeah. It's a very Truly. dangerous situation to be in. I hear that it's, it can be life-threatening. Truly. It was um, it was incredibly scary. It was touch and go. Mm. Um, the bacterial infections I was left with lasted for three months afterward. I was going to the hospital daily to get antibiotic infusions. Infusions, yeah. Um and it wasn't until my doctor forced me to take a full three weeks off of work and just heal that um, I started to feel better. And so that was in November. To give your body's natural immune response a chance mm -hmm. to kick in and collaborate yeah. with the antibiotics. Right. And so at that point, I laid on the couch for a full week straight. I got three acupuncture treatments a week. Mm -hmm. um, I focused on my diet, on holistic care. Um, and really allowed my body to do what it's meant to do, which is to heal. Um, shortly after that, I had some challenges with work, and I needed to find a place where I could find alignment. Mm -hmm. And so here I am, um, coach and consultant. And board member. And board member. Well, congratulations. <laughs> I know that this is a fairly recent development. You just started your practice a few yeah. months ago. I was at the grand opening inaugural. Yeah. Um, 
I'm so excited and happy for you because can, you can we can really feel that you're in alignment with your calling, yeah. you know, with your divine purpose. I truly believe that each and every one of us is gifted something unique unto them alone that it's really just our job to figure out what that talent is and find a way to offer it to the world. And we can sense when we're in your presence and you're doing what you're doing, that you have found the beam, that you are on your path doing what you're meant to be doing the way that you help the people that you're divine to help. Um, it's, it's palpable. So how does that feel to step out of the corporate environments and the college academia realm into your own uh, sovereignty doing the th the thing that you are called to do with the world you know brian when you say to step out of that and to step into my own sovereignty i think is so powerful um, that's a powerful statement um it feels good i would be lying if it, if i said it didn't feel scary and uncertain at times it feels like if there were a metaphor it feels like floating, like stepping off a cliff and floating in the air mm. instead of falling. And trusting, right? If we go back to that Indiana Jones um, scene way back in the movies where he kind of throws the dust and you can see this path. Barely see the path over the precipice. Right. Um, that's what it feels like. And trusting this wholehearted trust that I am where I am supposed to be. And if I show up authentically and do me and stay in alignment, I will get to where I am supposed to be and help the people I am supposed to help. I've always believed that if you do the right things for the right reasons, you can't help but succeed. And mm -hmm. when we are in alignment and operating from a place of integrity, yes. um, the universe conspires to our benefit. It conspires to help us along this path. Yeah. The universe conspired to get you out of the course that you were in, mm -hmm. out move you gently and sometimes not so gently into what you're supposed to be doing. So if we follow those divine interventions, we could follow those intuitions and those little pings that help put us on that course. The universe will conspire to give you the things that will help you succeed. Have you noticed any of that so far? Oh, my gosh, yes. Like little synchronicities, <laughs> little serendipities. Yes. Little Yes, um, all over the place, all over the place. And I think the most important part of that for me has been um, really listening, taking a pause and being open to it. I think all of us get those pings and get that, oh, yeah. that intuition, but oftentimes we don't listen. We're not hearing and we're not aware of what's happening enough in our body to understand what that means. And so even just this morning, I was talking with a colleague of mine saying, I really am not sure how I want to start a lecture that I'm doing on Saturday. And all of a sudden I heard, oh, start with um, a guided meditation. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's an example of just being in flow. Right. Um, and being open to what the universe has to offer and, and hopefully what I have to offer, you know, the universe can offer through me. Well, in today's day and age, it's really hard to sit in that silence because there are so many distractions and the world is so loud and our lives are so busy. It's really challenging to make space for that quiet, that peacefulness, so those intuitions can come mm -hmm. through. And then often when they come through, they're so fucking scary that it's like, or they don't look like the thing that we want. That's like, what it is. Yeah. Like, that's not what I want. Right. 
so we subvert it, we ignore it, we go in another path, and you know things don't always work out when we do that. Right. So. Yeah, I find that a lot with my clients where they have this, and oftentimes as a coach, you know, coaches are supposed to work with their client, set a goal, figure out the steps to achieve the goal, and move from there. Right. A, B, C, D. Done. That is not the kind of coach I am. <laughs> right. The kind of coach I am is to really figure out the who and kind of the where someone's intuition and help them connect with their intuition, help them connect with their guides, help them connect with that um, larger divine power hmm. um, so that they can use that as they move forward. So how do you help somebody connect with their intuition? It's a conversation that comes up all the time for me and during these podcasts, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. helping people get reunited, reconnected with that divine inspiration, that thing that helps guide them onto the path. How do you help your clients? Well, I think the first thing is finding silence, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like what you just said about in today's world, it is so difficult to, um, in today's world, it's so difficult to find the silence and to find space. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of times that's what we do in coaching, right? We'll do, I'll do a guided meditation. Silence in coaching allows the participant, allows my person I'm working with to exhale. Right. And to breathe for a minute. And so then through a series of questions, right? What is your head telling you? What is your heart telling you? What are your guts telling you um, about this? How do you come to that knowledge? What does that really look like? Um, that's how we start to find what the intuition voice sounds like. Most of the time, it's something we've heard all along, but we've ignored. Right. Um, and so really, it's not finding intuition. It's learning how to hear it. Um, and once we find that intuition in a coaching session, then we can keep reinforcing that. So oftentimes I'll ask clients, what is your intuition telling you about this? What is the first thing, you know, that your intuition is saying? And we have to be careful, right? Because our own biases and, you know, paranoia and, and worry mm -hmm. comes into that and can oftentimes sound like intuition and it's not. Yeah. Um, intuition is the piece of us that is connected to our highest self. Yeah is connected to, you know, to that larger universal power and, and it has a purity, a, a tonality that is different than worry. Completely different feeling. Mm -hmm. And for me, intuition always has, it resides from a different place. For me, I can actually tell within my physical body where this feeling, thought, emotion, or guidance is coming from. For me, I can tell if I breathe, if it's coming from my head or coming from my gut, then it's usually fear. It's yeah. something cognitive and it's some paradigm that's that's stuck in my head. And it's usually ego-based or fear-based. Um, if it's coming between, from just behind my heart, mm. like the pericardium, the, the part, uh, the sac that protects the heart. If it's coming from just behind the heart, that's how I can tell for me when this is intuitive. This is something that I need to do. And what does that feel like for you? It depends on the scenario. It depends on what intuitive ping I'm getting. Like if it's, for example, when I shut my business down and decided to pack a backpack and go travel the world, there was a lot of fear involved around right. that, you know, so distinguishing whether or not the feelings of fear that, that were residing around this concept of shutting down my business and moving 2000 miles away with nothing but a backpack 
was this God telling me that something was about to off happen that was going to be awful? Or is this ego and things tell me though, this is an opportunity to grow. Right. Right. So it, it really depends on if it's like, don't walk down that alley or pack a backpack and go on this trip or read this book or call this person. Mm-hmm. It really just depends on, on the scenario. Um, often, you know, if it's for my highest growth, for my mm-hmm. greater good, the feeling is, one of light and liberation it's like kind of an uplifting type of mm-hmm. like a you're breathing into a balloon and it's starting to expand a little bit mm-hmm. um but again it just depends on what that scenario is and mm-hmm. what what the intuition is trying to guide me to do it really changes every single time but the, the important part is to take the time and sit down and feel into it and say, is this fear coming from my head and ego, or is this fear coming from divine inspiration saying I shouldn't, like, there's this one time, I remember I was in the shower getting ready to go to a, a New Year's Eve party, mm-hmm. and I just had this overwhelming intuition that, yeah, stay home, okay. just stay home. I got out of the shower, put on the towel, dried off a little bit, called my friends, I'm like, I'm not going out. They're like, why, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know, but I can't. I'm not going out and I have no idea what would have happened Mm -hmm. because I followed my intuition right so well and that's such a perfect story of of what happens when we follow our intuition versus um not following our intuition and it and it I love that you differentiate between gut head heart and where that's coming for you for me I hear my guides okay so I'll often say oh I got something, okay. right? Because I'm hearing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm hearing my guide say, SJ, this direction or that direction. The other thing is when we're in flow, we're, we're working with our intuition. And so when we're in flow, there's incredible space of, of being fully present, right? Of being fully present. And that's when you hear, most hear, I think for me, when I most hear my intuition, um, and I found that with clients. So, yeah. So, getting back to what you do, like, how did you feel called to focus on the leadership aspect before moving into um, being a coach? Like, you spent all this time in curriculum mm-hmm. in the scholastic area mm-hmm. and focusing on leadership. You know, what brought you to that and why did you feel called to focus on leadership in particular? Because that's a word that's always resonated and been really powerful for me is mm-hmm. cultivating and growing new leaders. You know, I think, uh, BC, I think. Oh, so I'll just be really transparent because um, that's that's usually that's best. right. That, and that's how I roll. Right. So. Um, I believe my soul's purpose is to understand power and to understand power dynamics. Um, and I believe as I look back through my life and the things that changed my life most were around issues of power. Hmm. Um, so to understand how power works, it's important to understand leadership. I didn't go into academia with the purpose of understanding power. I came into it wanting to understand people. 
Okay. So my undergrad was all focused on people. It was women's studies. It was sociology. Sociology yeah. was understanding people. And even into my master's degree, I'm probably one of the very few people out there who changed their major in a master's program. In the middle of a master's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, um, but it, it wasn't filling the soul. It wasn't filling what I needed it to. And so what I wanted to understand was how does leadership impact people? Now, I will say... My parents are both incredible leaders. Um, I feel like my dad, you know, he um, he was um, a general contractor. He has a long history in construction and working on a job site. I got to that was my college, you know, high school jobs. Um, I got to learn about leadership there. I watched my mom, who had an associate degree, ended up working for the federal government for the FAA become a union rep um, and lead in that capacity. And so I watched my parents both take up this role of leadership and um, this idea that someone has to do it. And if someone has to do it, then if I'm a fit for that, then I want to serve in that way. And how to do it well. Right. How to be good at it. Because there's, as as evidence, (laughs) particularly the last six years of, our political dynamic. Yep. Um, there's definitely examples of positive leadership and negative leadership. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, one of the things that I really want to focus today on is, and the title of this entire podcast is empowering emotional resilience. Mm-hmm. So you've obviously been through a lot yourself what, how would you first of all define emotional resilience hmm. for you and maybe from a medical standpoint? Yeah, for me, um, and, and through my own work, uh, my own healing work, emotional resilience is the ability to feel your feelings deeply, authentically, um, with raw honesty, um, and keep moving forward. The ability to, I think oftentimes in, in more, um, academic and medical realms, it's the ability think of people think about it as the ability to bounce back. Right. Um, and that's where I'm a little bit different, um, because I think resiliency is, is the work we do every day. Um, and that is what makes us resilient because this is not an easy life to live for anyone. Um, you know, better than most, you see, you know, who's judging, right? Let me scoot forward just a little bit closer to my, sorry. Um, so um, yeah, so for me, it's less about the ability to bounce back and more about the ability to create the life that I want to live. Um, Sometimes it requires bouncing back. A lot of times it requires bouncing back. And it's not just that part. True. It's it's that whole process, you know, as, as you and I have talked about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think 
one of the challenges that we face as a society is, I mean, the reason that we're having this conversation, and I think that one of the challenges that we face as a society is this ability to be emotionally resilient. Mm -hmm. The ability for us to have difficult situations and circumstances arise within our lives and not allow it to take us out in order for us to have challenging encounters with people of differing opinions and beliefs and to not resort to anger, frustration, and violence. That's uh, to me, a marker of emotional resilience Mm -hmm. Um, to not take things personally is a measure of emotional resilience. The ability to, um, be self-accountable and to admit faults or misguidance is, to me, a measure of emotional resilience. Absolutely. And it doesn't seem, at least when we look at our politicians and the quote-unquote leaders that we are subject to these days, we don't seem to get a lot of examples of positive leadership and people that are emotionally resilient that can point out I was wrong here. I'm sorry. I, I thought this thing. I mm-hmm. uh, now given privy to new information. I'm changing my stance because I think that I was on the wrong course and misguided. Um, how do you think that that would help say somebody in high school to have a better understanding of emotional resilience when it comes to relationships and not taking things so personal? Yeah, I think it, um, I think, Oftentimes, uh, as I was listening to you kind of wax lyrical there, I was like, yes, yes, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling this. Um, You know, in in high school, uh, for kids at that developmental stage, um, one of the things they are not taught in the U.S. um, is anything about vulnerability and courage. And the idea behind resilience, right, um, if I'm going to get real with my emotions, I need to get vulnerable with myself and be okay being vulnerable with others. In order to do that, it takes courage, right? Right. Um, and I think I think our, um, our current contemporary society prohibits um, any sense of vulnerability um, and, and puts it either in the too emotional, you're too emotional, or it puts it into a category of not strong. Okay. Um, And so I think if we had the opportunity to really feel the feels and get into where we are and figure out where our alignment is, right, that's where where the sweet spot is. So what happens when people suppress these emotions and don't succumb to vulnerability and authenticity what happens when a person spends a prolonged period of time pretending to be something that they're not um how does that affect a person's mental stability you know i would say from a psychological level um it's it's incredible incredibly damaging um and the reason is because um it it devalues the authentic self and makes the person think I'm not enough. Right. I'm not enough. The way I am, I'm not enough. And that then can turn into a deep, dark spiral. Mm -hmm. I think metaphysically what it does is slowly kill your soul. Mm -hmm. You know, if we think about it from, from sociological terms or, um, or even psychological terms, this idea of 
impression management. I have to manage my impression so that other people see what I want them to see. Well, there's a gap then. Right. And especially for our youth, that gap is where pain exists. Um, because, and they're never able to truly feel or share what it is that they're going through. And so in that gap becomes a volatile, right? Volatile emotion where, and I think this is where we're seeing people violence against others, violence against self. Um, that's where we see that come to fruition. The shame keeps us in the dark. Absolutely. You know, and like a mold or a fungus, when we don't feel like we're good enough as we are, that we are innately of value to the world, things rot. Both our soul and our integrity tend to erode and deteriorate, and that manifests outward in the deterioration of all relationships and how we interact with other people, whether it's a random stranger or a close loved one. Um, one of the things that I'm really excited about, and we'll talk about this a little bit later as we get into the show, is the program that you and I are delving into trying to yeah. implement within the school districts to try to help mediate and subvert some of the violence and uh, depression that we're, we're seeing, particularly in today's youth. Um, what would be one great piece of advice that you would offer somebody that's kind of struggling, stepping into their authenticity, to have the courage and the faith to authentically just show their true, true selves. You know, I think if I were to give advice is that um, the more likely it is that, that you are willing to step into your authentic self, the more likely it is that other people with you will step into their authentic selves. We do this through modeling and it's hard. It's fucking hard living authentically, living in line with your integrity and the values that you have is the hardest thing you will ever do in your life. It's harder than surviving. Truly. Why do you say that? Why do you think that is? Because it has to do with your heart and soul. It's not about basic, um, it's not about the basic parts of surviving. It's not about just finding food. It's not about finding housing. It's not about that. It's this part of, it's the place where choice becomes a real issue. Okay. Um, and if I'm not living in line with myself, who am I living in line with? And what does that say about me? And how do I show up? It's also particularly terrifying it's one thing to be rejected for somebody we pretend to be oh gosh yeah uh -huh. but to risk being rejected for who we really are would indicate mm. that we truly have no value that there's no purpose to our existence so being vulnerable and risking authenticity takes it to a whole new level. Like I said, it's one thing to risk being rejected for who you pretend to be. If people don't like you and you're putting on this mask, you're, you're acting and, and putting on a show and people don't like it. You're like, eh, that's one thing. 
But if you really step out and say, this is who I am, this is the true real me. And then people reject that. There's no going back from that, that there's no, no. redemption from that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so terrifying and so rare to meet somebody who's truly authentically vulnerable all of the time. Oh, that moves me. I see tears. Yeah, that moves me. Because you're right. And being rejected for who you truly are is deeply painful. And it's also an indicator that not with our people. Right. <laughs> like Maya Angelou, you said, uh, Maya Angelou once said, I will rather earn the ire of true enemies than false friends. Yes. Yes. Well, one of the things that we're really excited about, and I really want to get into this and spend a, a good chunk of our time here today talking about the program that you and I are trying to create through a world mm-hmm. in power to try to help youth. Um, do you want to share what we've come up with, or do you want to give the background on why we started it? Um, what I can do either, BC. <laughs> Let me jump into yeah. it. Mean, we, part of the issue is that we see so much talk today of trying to legislate away hate. Mm-hmm particularly when it comes to like gun violence and mass shootings and school violence, things like that. And I personally have a a deep, deep, deep hatred for laws that don't address the problems. And all of this money and time and legislation spent towards something that I think won't have a positive lasting impact and won't actually address the systemic causes of what's going on. Um, for me, you you can't legislate against hate. You can't get rid of violence by making a law and you can't make somebody love somebody based on something the government decides, uh, should or shouldn't be. So to me, we talked about it at the, the very first time that we met, we were talking about If they want to make legislation against the Second Amendment, they should put at least equal effort into trying to figure out why so many people are hurting. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've often said is that not all hurting people hurt people, but all people who hurt people are hurting. And we talk about mental health in this country, but it's a platitude. It's Mm-hmm. used as a punchline. We talk about the importance of mental health, but the only thing that we actually do to try to address it is we build $13 million facilities to house people after they've had breakdowns, yep. after the, they're already afflicted with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, or they've already attempted suicide because they've been in the pits of d- depression for 15 years. Everything that we do in this country is so flipping reactive I want to spend some time trying to figure out why people are hurting so bad that they find it acceptable to harm others. Mm -hmm. And I want to start doing something at a very young age that will actually have a positive impact 
on the trajectory of today's youth. So you want to share some of the ideas that we came up with and what we're talking about trying to implement in the school system this year? Yeah, I do. It's um, it's really, really exciting um, because I think, Brian, you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, when we have systemic issues, you can put Band-Aids places and chances are they're going to fall off and they're not going to work, which is exactly what um, we have been doing and what this reactive approach is. Um However, however, if we look to the system and we really examine what's going on there, like every other type of shadow work we do, whether it is within us or outside of us, and we find a truth there, we have an opportunity to help. And the truth is that we are raising our young people to be these bifurcated humans who are trying to be something that they're not, who are filling the gap between who they are and and what they could be and who they think they're supposed to be with pain, with sadness. And so how do we help, what, what BC and I were talking about is, how do we help start to integrate that so that these young people are not influenced, unduly influenced, um, as they grow and how do we help them manage what comes up for them in that process. And so what BC and I are talking about is developing um, a program where um, school children um, have the opportunity to learn meditation techniques, um, to learn Qigong techniques, self-healing techniques that we know work, that science tells us work, that research tells us work. Um, so that we can help students and help our world, the people in our world, become more whole people and less likely to enact violence. In society today, it's not okay to not be okay. Everybody has to put on a smile and pretend everything is great. And we fill our lives with things to try to either distract us from the pain that's inside or help us feel like we've actually done something. And most of those things usually make us feel worse about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we spend all this time on social media comparing our lives to the lives Mm -hmm. of other people. And nobody actually teaches the skills that can be beneficial to help somebody navigate a challenging emotion. Mm -hmm whether it's sorrow and grief, fear, anger, frustration, or even love. We all know that that can be a pretty freaking challenging emotion from yeah. time to time. Yeah. And so there have been, there have been studies after study after study on the value of meditation, particularly when it comes to addressing depression and suicidal ideation. So I want to read a few of these studies that I found. Um, 2008, University of Wisconsin, published March 25th, the Public of Public Library of, Library of Science. What, this study was the first one to use functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRIs, to indicate a positive, that positive emotions such as loving kindness and compassion can be learned in the same way as playing a musical instrument or being proficient in a sport. The scans revealed that the brain (coughs) circuits used to detect emotions and feelings 
were dramatically changed in the subjects who had extensive experience practicing compassion meditation. Mm -hmm. The research suggests that individuals from children, that individuals from children who may be engaged in bullying to people who are prone to recurring depression and society in general, in general could benefit from such meditative practices says the study director, Richard Davidson, professor of psychology and psychiatry at the University of Madison. He also goes on to say, I think this can be one of the tools that we use to teach emotional regulation to kids who are at an age where they are vulnerable and at risk of going off track. Compassion meditation can be beneficial in promoting more harmonious relationships of all kinds, and the world can certainly use a little more kindness and compassion Starting at the local level, the consequences of changing in this way can be directly experienced. So the point that SJ and I are trying to make is if we try to force a teenager to meditate, do Qigong and yoga, it's probably going to be pretty hard. Yeah. They're going to think they're a dork. They're going to think this is woo-woo, <laughs> this is BS, and they're not going to do it. Yeah. Uh, you have teenagers, you've raised children, uh, I've been spent enough time around them, and I remember when I was one, uh, trying to force somebody who's trying to understand and step into their own autonomy into doing something that's outside of their comfort zone isn't going to happen. And at best, you're going to create a resistance or a resentment by doing so. Mm -hmm. The idea is, what if we made this mainstream? What if we made this a part of daily life at a school level starting in kindergarten? What if we taught kindergartners the first thing in the morning, they spent 45 minutes doing meditation, mindfulness, yoga, qigong, and it was just a part of life. And they move on to first grade. And they start every morning with 45 minutes of meditation, mindfulness, yoga, and qigong. And it's just a part of life. Mm -hmm. Because it's been proven, and I've got study after study here. I can read many more about how it changes the prefrontal cortex and helps a person regulate these challenging emotions. I think that a part of the reason why there's so much frustration and animosity in the world today that's leading to resentment so strong that a person's willing to harm another person is that we have no idea how to manage these struggling emotions. We're not taught the tools how to do this. We're taught suck it up buttercup or distract yourself with a movie or alcohol or some other form of addiction. Right. Make it so you make it right. So what are your thoughts on what we need to do and the benefits of this idea? Um, yeah, I love this idea. Um, and one of the reasons I love it so much is because um, it truly is uh, an educative factor. So if we start looking at, you know, I was recently looking at what were the test outcomes of um, my local district um, um, K through 12 schools. And some of what I was finding is that they were 30% 30, 30 proficient in math. Um, some of the right. higher ones were 45% proficient in math for their grade level. It was astounding how low they were. And we were looking at the study, the, the article was looking at um, pre-COVID versus post-COVID and how COVID impacted education. 
However, I will say this. Um, we have decided that education um, is all about testing, is all about money, is all about, right, where you live and taxes and, and those sorts of things. This type of program is available to, could be available to everyone. There's no expense associated with it. It is, it would be a very, a great way to equalize the experience across from rural towns to urban towns. Um, and if, and if the, if we don't start using emotional regulation and mental health as an indicator for a productive human in education, um, we're going to end up with a society of people that were never, it was never designed for. Right. The other thing that, it's been proven that meditation can help with is understanding and relating to other people's emotions. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's very hard for anybody to recall an experience where they saw somebody deride or get violently aggressive with somebody who was expressing a difference of opinion, whether it's on Facebook or at the local grocery store. Uh, we've all personally experienced plenty of opportunity to see another person get frustrated and angry with somebody simply because they don't understand where they're coming from and they don't care about what that person is feeling. I'm going to read another study. Uh, February 2021, how meditation helps with depression. Stress, stress and anxiety are major triggers of depression and meditation can alter your reaction to those feelings. Meditation trains the brain to achieve sustained focus, to return to that focus when negative thinking, emotions, and physical sensations intrude, which happens a lot when you feel stressed and anxious, says Dr. John William Derringer, the director of research at the Benson Henry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine at Harvard. Meditation has been found to change certain brain regions that are specifically linked with depression. For instance, scientists have shown that the medial prefrontal cortex becomes hyperactive in depressed people. The medial prefrontal cortex is often called the me center of the brain because this is where you process information about yourself, such as worrying about the future and what's that word? Ruminating. Ruminating. <laughs> it's small type there. I know. Yeah, there. I had to look really close. I had to put all of these studies on three <laughs> sheets of paper, so this is shrunk down to point nine or nine font. It's really, yeah. I'm Sorry. impressed <laughs> with your with your eye ability there. <laughs> uh, ruminating about the past. When people get stressed about life, the prefrontal cortex goes into hyperdrive. Another brain region associated with depression is the amygdala or the fear center. This is the part of the brain responsible for the fight or flight response, which triggers an, the adrenal glands to release the hormone cortisol in response to fear or perceived danger. Another brain region associated with the depression is the amygdala or the, oh, that was repeated twice. And so the point is these two brain regions work off of each other to cause depression. The me center gets worked up reacting to stress and anxiety and the fear center response leads to a spike in cortisol that fights the for the fight or flight danger that is only in your mind. Research has found that the meditation helps break the connection between these two brain regions. 
When you meditate, you are better able to ignore the negative sensations of stress and anxiety, which experts in part explains in part why stress levels fall when you start to meditate. Another reason which this brought up to calls to your point, uh, meditation is helpful by protecting the hippocampus, the area of the brain involved with memory. One study discovered that people who meditate for 30 minutes a day for at least eight weeks have increased the matter of the volume of gray matter in their hippocampus. And other research has shown that people who suffer from reoccurring depression tend to have smaller hippocampus. So again, our challenge is to start making this mainstream. Our challenge is to start making this a part of the daily lives of every child, beginning at at literally the kindergarten level. They go to school, they start their day meditating on compassion and loving kindness. Their prefrontal cortex grows, their hippocampus grows, their cortisol decreases, and they have a better ability to emotionally regulate the stressors in their life and a better ability to relate to other people uh, when they're faced with challenging situations. Your experience, particularly in academia, is going to be profound in helping a world in power to get this out. What are some of the challenges you know we're going to face as we begin to create this program and begin to try, try to get schools on board with implementation? You know, I think one of the biggest challenges or, you know, uh, which I actually don't think is a challenge if if we think about it, but I think is going to be one of the first things that will push back is um, finance. Um, And as we talked about previously, a world empowered is dedicated to this cause um, and can help with the financial aspect of that. And it's really not expensive. These are minor changes in curriculum minor changes in curriculum. So I think the financial aspect, the budget aspect is really one that um, would have to be talked through. The second aspect that I think is hard is people are misinformed about what meditation is, about what yoga practice is, about what healing practices. I mean, we have the, you, you just read the research that says this is what's happening physiologically in the brain, Dr. Susan Britton, who's a coach um, of the academies incorporated, developed a model called um, red zone, blue zone. And it speaks to this exactly where red zone, you know, is obviously when we're in that flight, fight, fawn, freeze Mm -hmm. response and blue zone being then when we're in that calm, understanding, peaceful zone where we we can start to understand. And so I think it's going to take some education and really a greater, a greater push from those of us who are committed to seeing a nonviolent society, to seeing a healthy society, a whole society, being willing to put our authentic voice out there and, and helping educate around what is yoga, what is meditation, what are these practices? They're not ideological. They are practices, right? It's not... It's not a religious ideology. It is a practice that is scientifically proven. Again, study after study after study um, has proven the efficacy equal to or greater than traditional like 
dialectal behavioral therapy and medication in conjunction. Um, I forgot where I was going with that crap. I had a point. <laughs> <laughs> I swear I had a point. You, you got really in the, in the space with it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I love ADD. I got derailed. Um, that's okay. Yeah. We were talking about, um, what the challenges are, um, making it mainstream and getting people to understand that this isn't a religion, mm -hmm. that this isn't about an ideology, that these are practices like learning to play the piano or learning a new language or learning any sports or athletics, that this is something that is scientifically proven to change our emotional response and grow our brains. Mm -hmm. um, there's going to be a huge kickback because a lot of people associate meditation with a religion. I'm not sure where that even came about or why, but helping people to see that this is something that can actually have a benefit. Mm -hmm. And it's time that we actually start making steps towards making a difference because you can't legislate hate. You can't get, get rid of violence by getting rid of guns. I just saw there was a guy in, in New York that killed 10 people with stabbed 22 people, killing 10 and injuring 12. Like it's a mass death scenario with a knife. Like you get rid of guns. Somebody's going to do it with a vehicle. You're going to do it with a box cutter or a knife. Like we have to actually decide whether or not as a society that we're going to prioritize mental health in a way that it's not just reactive, that it's not just putting kids on medication and sending them to a, a facility for a 72-hour hold because they've, they're suicidal, suicidal ideation or they've actually attempted. Like, are we going to actually sit down and say, this is worth trying because our kids are worth saving? We talk about trying to legislate all this shit away and think that changing the Second Amendment and making guns harder to get or whatever is going to have any impact when we have no understanding of why people are so frustrated, so hurt that they're willing to go out and hurt other people. Are we willing to step into as a society and decide that this is something worth implementing? This is something worth trying. And we're willing to try this with our kids at a kindergarten level because it's been proven that yoga, meditation, qigong, and mindfulness can have a significant impact on people understanding their own emotions, regulating challenging emotions, and expressing empathy during challenging times. Right, and therefore being more, more resilient, more authentic, more able to be who they are. I mean, it's not even, and it's not just the mental health piece, <coughs> right? It's how these humans are showing up in our society and what they're capable of doing. Um, you know, when our brain is in that stress, in that stress zone, Everything stops working. The dendritic pathways end up in loop, right? Meditation allows those neurological pathways to find new spaces and new places in order to cope better, in order to think more creatively, in order to, um, you know, really push the, push the limits. We have an opportunity as a nation to support this next generation and not even, I would say not even an opportunity, but an obligation it's a necessity. It's a paramount necessity. Um, and we must start focusing on the emotional health of children, of ourselves, of our, our, our family members. That has to be a main focus. And this is one way we can ensure that that happens.
it's time to put up or shut up. It's right. time to stop using mental health as a punchline. It's time to stop being so reactive and trying right. to figure out what it is that is causing people in this society so much pain. You know, when you're in that fight or flight, when you're, uh, what is it? The, the cortisol spike? Yeah, but it's the, not the prefrontal cortex that's stuck in my head now. Um, when you're stuck in that fight or flight, that survival mode, and you're in survival, how do you have compassion? Like the lion doesn't have compassion for the gazelle because it's trying to survive, right? And I think that a lot of people today, you're, you're seeing this, that they're stuck in this survival mentality because they're mm -hmm. just so spiked with cortisol all the time that it's pretty impossible to have a positive conversation with somebody because they literally feel like they're, they're life and death. They literally feel like they're in a fight for their survival. How do you have a conversation about something, uh, a dissension of opinion, when they feel like their entire existence is threatened? And to some degree, I would say it is. How so? Um, you know, I mean, if my entire existence is built on a belief system or a way of being hmm. that is being threatened, and I don't have the objectivity to step away from it, right? To just see things for what they for what they could be with different players, um, I do feel like I am I am under attack. If I am under attack, of course I go into flight or fight. Um, right. And so how, so the question is, how do we retrain the brain to recognize that these instances are not instances where we're, we're in a, fight, a fight for our survival, even though it feels like you are. There, there's an anecdotal study that they did about meditation and they, they call it the waiting room study. So they put 50 people in, into a room and they had like these controls were taking up all of the seats mm -hmm. and then they had two by two people come in and they had somebody, a lady who feigned handicapped. She was coming in with crutches, but there were no seats in the waiting room available. And they wanted to see who would actually give up their seat. Like they, the subway or the bus scenario and nobody gave up their seat. It was like 17% of the people in the study gave up their seat. Then they started on an eight-week yeah, eight meditation program, and they ran the study again. with a, a, This was a double-blind control study, so they did it with brand-new people. They did mm -hmm. an eight-week meditation program on compassion, and that rose from 17% to 51%. 51% of the people who went through the eight-week meditation program given the waiting room scenario, gave up their seat. They would actually stand up. And, and so, I mean, it's not it's super scientific. It's not fMRI brain imaging to actually explore how the hippocampus is growing and the prefrontal cortex is working and stuff like that. It's more of an anecdotal study. But uh, they did a similar study with, uh, I think it was second graders. Maybe it was just first graders, actually. It was a three-week, I think a three-week study so at the beginning of the study, they gave all of these first graders 10 stickers and asked them to divvy up the stickers amongst their amongst mm -hmm. the class. All of the popular kids got the stickers because it's just like kid nature. They want to be popular. So they kind of bribed their classmates right. and friends with the stickers. Well, guess what? 
the unpopular kids, the ones that were a little bit lower hygiene or a little bit less attractive or whatever, they ended up with no stickers. So they started doing a five minute compassion meditation with these first graders. They didn't teach them what meditation was and they didn't teach them what unconditional compassion was. They just said, close your eyes, take deep breaths and meditate on unconditional compassion. These are first graders. They, right. Again, they have no idea what this means. They didn't define what this meant. At the end of the study, they gave them their, their 10 stickers and asked them to divvy up the, the stickers amongst their classmates. Unilaterally, it was equal. Like every, they made sure they actually went around and made sure that every kid in the class had the same number of stickers. They didn't even, uh, this isn't programming. This isn't like, this is how you should be. They didn't define what compassion was. They didn't even like explain what meditation was. They said, we're going to meditate. So you close your eyes and breathe deeply on unconditional compassion. After three weeks, they, they, divvied up the stickers equally to every person in the classroom. How can this not be beneficial? We're going to need a lot of help though. Like you and I and my board alone can't make Poover school district or Weld school district start implementing this within their school system. But I, I genuinely believe that this can have a massive impact in as little as a couple of years, you know, once kids start getting into that fourth, fifth, sixth grade level, you're, you're going to start to see massive impacts on the level of school violence, whether it's just bullying in, in schools or actual like school violence. I think it can have a massive impact. Yeah, I'm thinking it through, too, and thinking about, you know, I know um, in um, Greeley District 6, one of the really cool things they did during COVID and they continue to work on um and I have to appreciate the school district, um, the, the superintendent, Deirdre Pilch. She was absolutely dedicated to making sure through COVID, these kids had food. Nice. And so kids had food for breakfast, kids had food for lunch. And I would say we are at a point in our evolution where this is just as critical as, as, as substance, because if we Equally, don't, if not more so, right. sorry, go ahead. Yeah. If we don't pause and look at what's happening and look at our obligation as educators, it's going to get away from us. It's going to get away from us. And these last six years that you talked about politically, the divisiveness in our country, the inability to have constructive dialogue and discourse. BC and I don't agree on things politically. Politically, there's a there's lot a, of things yeah. that we don't agree on. <laughs> right. Um, we're, we're coming at it from different spaces. However, the beauty is that we can have a dialogue. We have the emotional resilience to not take things personally and that we can talk compassionately with understanding, consideration, and caring around ideas that we don't agree on. Right. And still love each other through it, not judge the other person as right. less or judge ourselves less right. for hearing something that is contrary to our original paradigm. Right. And so what I feel like we need is the support of educators and school board members to get excited about this with us um, and figure out how we get it into, into these different um, school districts and start trying it out, right? 
So everybody out there listening, if you know somebody on the school board, if you know a principal, if you know uh, somebody on the PTA, if you know anybody that we can or should talk to around getting this program, first of all, created, because neither, I mean, I've been meditating for the better part of 15 years now. I've been doing Qigong for going on a decade. I do instruct Qigong, but I'm not going to be the one to create the meditation program. I'm not going nobody wants to see me bending over to do yoga. And I'm not a professional uh, Qigong or meditation instructor. So we need help pe- people to help create the programs. But we also need people to help get us in contact with the people who can actually start implementing this mm-hmm. at a kindergarten level. Again, this is where we want to begin with kindergartners. We need to start having these conversations with parents to help them understand that this isn't some woo-woo, we're going to indoctrinate your children with this weird ideology, that this is actually a scientifically proven methodology that can have an emotional impact, that can actually help with mental cognition, it can help decrease emotional stressors and actually boost their memory at the same time, Um, helping to make this more mainstream and help people realize that meditation is not a religious act. It's not like putting your hand on the Bible or saying the Pledge of Allegiance in the morning. We're not trying to indoctrinate kids with this crazy ideology. We're trying to give them the tools to help navigate challenging situations. Right. And so with that, and as as Brian said, if you know anybody, guess what? I know you do. Um, I know you know people. Um, who are involved in um, the education system in your local um, arenas. Um, and so get in touch with, get in touch with Brian, um, who will then get in touch with me because I, this concept, and right now that's what it is, is a concept, has the ability to change lives for generations to come. Again, I, it's really time to put up or shut up. Truly. It's really time Truly. to decide that mental health is a priority and start doing something proactive about it. To start doing something and teaching the, mm-hmm. the skills and techniques beyond um, psychotherapy, beyond medication in the pharmaceutical industry, teaching the everyday youth how to manage these challenging emotions it's time to make this the priority. We, we can't, as a society, whether we're talking about politics, calls, um, cultural, racial, gender bifurcation, uh, whether we're talking school violence and gun violence, like it, this can translate to literally every systemic challenge that we face mm-hmm. as a country. Every social, social issue and division that we, that we sense, this can have an impact, a positive impact on literally... I mean, outside of economics and literally every challenge that we face that well, that causes div- division. And perhaps even economics, right? Possibly. Who gets what stickers? <laughs> who gets yeah. what stickers? How do we decide what programs to help? What do we do with folks who, um, you know, are non-domiciled? How do we treat them as humans, right? Like, I think it could even impact that. Yeah. Are we serious about equality? Right. How about teaching this meditation to boost compassion so that we actually give up our seat or divvy out stickers equally where it doesn't become a zero sum game. Right. It could have a positive impact in every arena and we're going to need a lot of help to create the program and convince 
both the school districts and the parents alike that this is something that could be of major value. And I know that they're implementing these. I know that there are charter schools out there that are already using these techniques. Uh, a friend of mine has her kids at Aspen School in Highlands Ranch, and they have one rule. It's be kind. Like they, there's only one school in the, in, in the whole or one rule in the whole school. It's be kind. They filter everything that happens through this one paradigm. Was that kind? You know, they teach mindfulness, they teach yoga, and they teach uh, meditation at this. And so we know that there are schools out there. We just need to figure out how to make this mainstream because, it, it, again, it's a paramount importance. We can't survive the next generation going down the way that we've been going. Um, this no, and, you know, I see it with my <laughs> clients and the things that they're bringing to me as I coach them through leadership, as I coach them through life issues, as I coach them. These are the things they're struggling with. Um, with women, it is violence against self. It's this idea that I'm not good enough. Um, you know, I'm not even thinking kind of beyond that. It's this constant, we're constantly working on self-confidence. Um, you know, with men, it is, how do I not get pissed off? <laughs> That's my male clients. How do I not get pissed off? How do I rein it in? With my female clients, how do I feel like I'm enough, mm -hmm. right? That If I were to look at that's it, from a gender perspective, that's often what I feel. And when I work with folks who identify um, in marginalized identities, it's the same issue, mm -hmm. right? It's the same issues that keeps coming up. Yeah, the emotion that results may differ based on the person or gender but ultimately, it probably boils down to just an I'm not good enough as I am. You know, right. Whether it's anger management or insecurity or inadequacy, it really revolves around the same mental construct. And this can have a big impact on that as well. Yeah. I really love you. I appreciate you and your time and your perspective. I'm so honored to have you as a part of our board. Um, how do people get in touch with you and reach out for your counseling? If they're struggling, they want to change their lives, if they're thinking about getting out of their job and stepping into a new career, how do they get in touch with you for counseling, coaching, and, and what you do? Yeah, thank you. Um, this has been an incredible hour, and one of my favorite, um, Brian, the first time he and I met, we, we didn't get to talk long enough, so we scheduled some more time, and we ended up going for almost three hours. Mm -hmm. Um, so this has been a perfect And you were worried that we wouldn't have enough to talk about today. I know. <laughs> I, was a, I was a little nervous. I don't think this. I'm prepared enough. But <laughs> trust me, we're not going to have any trouble filling up the hour. Um, yeah. So thank you for your confidence in me. My pleasure. How do people get in touch with you? Yeah. So um, you can find me at my website, which is www.sunstonecoaching.org. Or better way to contact me is through email, which is sj so sarah jean initials for sarah jean sj at sunstoneleadership.org perfect do you have any programs events i know that you've got you're given a presentation you're given a, a lecture yeah. at the holistic fair this weekend yeah tell people how they can come support that and actually meet you in person and hear yeah, I would be so excited for that. So this weekend, um, out at the ranch, the Larimer County Fairgrounds, is a holistic fair. It's our the 40th annual holistic fair. And I will be having a booth there while I'll be talking with folks about um, spiritual coaching. But I'll also be giving a lecture on Saturday at 2 o'clock 
on the magic that happens within liminal spaces, those transitional in-between, in-betwixt spaces. And so I would love to connect with all of you. Um, I would love to talk about this podcast. I would love to talk about other projects. I would love to work on coaching relationships, you know, wherever wherever the universe and flow takes us, um, I trust in that space. Yeah, and just for anybody listening beyond this week, that's Saturday, September 17th at two o'clock at the Budweiser. Yeah, kind of Lamar Fairgrounds right there by the Bud Event Center. Yep. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Yeah. One last, if you could inoculate the world one, with one piece of wisdom, one little bit of insight, something that has meant the most to you to help you get to where you are today that you wish everybody could feel, like in their heart feel, what would that be? What might that be? That regardless of who we are, you are loved, you are respected, and you belong. Regardless of who we are, you are loved, you are respected, and you belong. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all who participated. Thank you for your time. Oh, great. I'm honored. So much. Thank you. We'll talk to you all again soon. Thank you. so much for listening to today's interview. I hope there's something in there that inspired you. I hope you're feeling empowered and awed and something spoke to your soul and resonated with your heart. If you're interested in contacting today's guest, please check the show notes, follow him on Facebook or send him an email. As always, please subscribe, rate and review and share this podcast with anybody that you know that might benefit from its message. This has been BC from the World Empowered, wishing you the very best. I love you all. Thank you. Have a wonderful day.